Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everyone, and welcome to New Books in National Security. This is your host, Paul, back after a somewhat lengthy hiatus. Today, we have Mr. Phil Gursky with us in the studio here to talk about his latest book, Western Foreign Fighters. Phil was also on New Books in National Security previously uh, to talk about his first book. And uh, Phil, thank you for coming on the show again. It's great to have you here. Oh, my pleasure, Paul. I like doing this. So thanks for taking the time. Absolutely. So maybe we can start uh, just to refresh our listeners' memories or, or if um, they haven't heard of you before. Um, what's your background? Where do you come at writing uh, these uh, these books from? Yeah, what's this guy doing writing books on terrorism in Canada? So uh, my background is I worked for 32 years in, in the intelligence community in this country. I worked my first 17 and a half years with Communications Security Establishment, which is Canada's Signals Intelligence Organization. And then at the end of 2000, I moved over to CSIS, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. Timing was impeccable in a sense because it was nine months before 9-11. And I became an expert in radicalization and homegrown extremism. And then upon my retirement from the Federal Civil Service in 2015, worked a bit for the Ontario Provincial Police, anti-terrorism section as a consultant, and I've been writing books ever since. So this is the second book, and there's a third one coming up in the fall, actually. Great. Well, we'll have to have you on for the uh, for the third book as well. So uh, your book uh, kind of begins with uh, a discussion of uh, why war takes place more generally, not necessarily just in the context of, of Islamists or, or, or jihadist groups. Um, can you just give us a brief your sort of introduction on, on where you're coming from on that topic? Sure. So the book really was written in many ways as a follow-on to the first book, which was The Threat From Within. And that was a book looking at radicalization, specifically in Canada, but sort of more generally in the West. And I wanted to ask the question, okay, now that we've discussed radicalization, what do we do with these people? And, of course, the phenomenon of foreign fighters, which is the topic of the book, uh, I think is one that has seized the imagination over the past three or four years. That is, Canadians, Americans, Brits, French Mm -hmm. citizens, Germans, all heading over to to fight. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted, well, the question was why? And um, and more importantly, what threat do they pose? But I thought I wanted to frame the question in a different way, and ask uh, start off with why do people why do we go to war in the first place, and why do people volunteer to go fight in armies? So I certainly don't see myself as an expert in war. There's some fantastic books available on warfare uh, across the centuries, across the millennia. But I wanted to just give a very brief introduction as to why do scholars think that humans go to war. And what are the consequences of going for war? So it's, it's sort of just a, a very short chapter to sort of set the tone about why I wrote the book. And I think even more importantly, um, the book was finished, was, was being finished um, in November of 2015. And I was in northern France at the time with one of my, with one of my daughters and had spent time touring uh, Canadian war sites. Mm-hmm. And I had toured uh, a site called Bomo Hamel, where the Newfoundlanders were slaughtered on, on Canada Day in 1916. Uh, out of 800 and some odd, or 700 and some odd soldiers that went over the top, 60 reported for duty next morning. It was a complete, another disaster that Newfoundlanders celebrate, or commemorate rather, to this day. And it really hit me personally about why these young men, why Canadians were crossing the ocean and fighting in a war that had nothing to do with Canada. And I, so I, I'm trying to frame the book in that is there any similarity uh, or commonality amongst the reasons why people volunteer to fight in what we would call accepted wars or sanctioned wars versus people who choose to fight in wars like what's happening in Syria and and choose to join groups that we call terrorist groups like Islamic State? Mm -hmm. I I think it's an apt comparison because in both cases you have a far-off empire that's issuing this sort of call to arms and it's primarily young men who are going to come and, and take up that call. It's just uh, the, the empires have taken slightly different shapes. but uh, and, and yet it's surprising that it's not a comparison that I've encountered before in any of the literature that, that I've looked at necessarily. I think it was unique. It's unique. I was a little worried at first that people might have thought that I was drawing a... I was um, 
developing a moral equivalency mm-hmm. between people who fight for the Canadian Armed Forces, for example, and the few hundred Canadians who've gone to fight for Islamic State. I'm, I'm, I'm not at all trying to say the two are the same sure. at, to any extent, but I wanted to ask the very simple question, are their motivations similar? So in other words, what go, what's their, th- their thought process that leads them to either sign up to join you know, fight in on the Western Front in 1914 versus go fight for Islamic State a century later in 2014? So again, not I, I'm not trying to um, it's, it's, there's no insult intended to to those that become soldiers, and I'm not trying to say that they're terrorists, but I, I wanted to see if there were in fact some some surprising similarities in terms of the mindsets. Mm-hmm. And the the variety of conflicts that you looked at were kind of interesting in that respect, too, because you looked at a number of different conflicts, the Spanish Civil War, uh, the, both World Wars, uh, Vietnam, uh, even in the case of, of some of the Canadian volunteers that uh, that went to Vietnam sort of on their own for uh, almost as foreign fighters, um, people who volunteered with the Kurdish Defense Forces, the Israeli Defense Forces. So... I'm sure the motivations were were varied, but can you give us a sense of the kinds of different motivations these young, sure. I guess, men mostly? Mostly uh, men. I wanted to compare what I call sanctioned versus non-sanctioned wars. So the main sanctioned wars I looked at was World War One from a Canadian perspective. Uh, Canada signed up right away as a member of the British Empire in 1914, and Canada felt it had an obligation to to fight. Uh, with the British Expeditionary Forces on the Western Front. And some 600,000 Canadians ended up fighting, of which about 10% died. It was a tremendous loss of life for Canada during that time period. And you look at the motivations, some of them were just, well, I'm working on a farm in Saskatchewan, and I'm bored, and I want to do something new. There was a romanticism to war that, that existed very much a century ago. I think that romanticism is dead, thank God, because ro- war is not romantic. There are also some that were, were reading at what was happening on the Western Front and some reports of atrocities the Germans were carrying out, real and or fake, because there was certainly fake news back then as well. And there were those that wanted to, to go and right those wrongs, go help the French against these animalistic German Huns kind of thing. There was some for king and country. There was that as well. When you get into the what I call the unsanctioned wars, like the Spanish Civil War, which is a fascinating time period in Canadian history. So there's some 1,500 Canadians that end up um, signing up for what were called the Mackenzie Papineau Brigades. And, and they were part of the Internationalist Brigade. That, that These were soldiers from around the world that went and fought for the Nationalists. Um, again, or sorry, fought for the Republicans against the Nationalists in the Spanish Civil War. And because the... Um, the, the nationalists were basically fascists. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the, the, the very famous uh, Pablo Picasso painting of Guernica is a painting of what happened when essentially the Nazis tried out massive bombings on a village in preparation for the Second World War. And that was in support of the, of the, of the uh, nationalist cause. So all these Canadians went and fought. And, and there's an amazing book by a, a former McLean's reporter called Michael Petrud. And he looked at, he interviewed these guys. And when they were still alive, or got some kind of access to their their writings, and it, it was fascinating to look back in time why they went and fought, and and some of the reasons were there was a romanticizing of war was still there, but his notion I want to defeat fascism, I want to go support democracy, I want to prevent atrocities from happening, and at the time this is sort of the tail end of the Great Depression. And at the time, the RCMP was beside itself with fear that these Canadians who fought in Spain would become communists and, and may come back as fifth colonists. And, uh, in, and so as a result, the, uh, the Canadian government at the time, uh, under Mackenzie King, did pass a piece of legislation that exists to this day called the Foreign Enlistments Act, which makes it illegal to leave Canada to join a foreign army, which I find quite fascinating. And the RCMP even admits that its investigations into the returning Spanish Civil War veterans didn't end until the 1980s, which is wow. so they were worried about these guys, be, you know, actually having subversive ideologies, um, communist, because it was the it was sort of a socialist brigade. And as it turned out, not a single act of violence was attributed to any person that came back from the Spanish Civil War. But we didn't know at the time. They were, they were our first foreign fighters in a sense. You talked about Vietnam, and, and many Canadians have no idea that upwards of 30,000 Canadians fought with the Americans in Vietnam. 30,000. I had no idea. That I didn't know it was that, that number either. Yeah. A lot of them are dual citizens. Mm-hmm. And when you look at their motivation, it's really quite interesting. There's some, a great book by a man called... Um, is Frank Gaffney. He's from Hamilton. And he, he looked at all these guys that fought. Motivations were as simple as, I wanted a job. 
I thought that fighting with the Americans would give me great experience to join the Canadian Army. Um, some of it was anti-communist, but mm-hmm. very, very little of it. Most of it was like, yeah, this is something to do at the time. And then we go, we go forward to, you know, the Canadians who fought with the Kurdish forces in northern Iraq. This is highly problematic for the Canadian government because the YPG, which is the, the Kurdish force in northern Iraq, is actually the armed faction of the PKK, which is a listed terrorist entity. So technically, if you go and fight for the Kurds, you're fighting for a terrorist group, mm. which means you should be arrested upon return to Canada because uh, that's illegal in this country. No one to date has been arrested or charged. They've all been questioned about what they did. Um, the Canadian government's official position is you really should join the Canadian Army mm-hmm. if you want to go fight against ISIS. Um, but again, you ask these guys their motivations. And it's, it, they're, they're horrified at what Islamic State is doing to people. Mm-hmm. And they want to, you know, they want to fight beside the plucky Kurds who are, are defending their honor and defending their land against against the Islamic State. So those are the kinds of motivations that drove just average Canadians, and they really were average Canadians. They were from all walks of life, all socioeconomic classes, all ethnic backgrounds. You looked at the Spanish Civil War, you had Finns, you had Ukrainians, you had mm-hmm. Scots, you had everything. And there's a, there's a war memorial here in Ottawa that, that commemorates the, the Canadians who fought in the Spanish Civil War. And I visited a few times, and you go down the list of names and it's 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 a who's who of canadianity Mm -hmm. it's every imaginable ethnic background which is of course canada being a multicultural nation so it's really quite interesting to try to try to get into their heads as to because these people they all volunteered and one thing i made very clear in the book is that i didn't want to look at people who were conscripted or people who were mercenary Mm -hmm. i wanted to look at people who simply said there's a war there's a conflict i want to go there and ask the question well why did you do that Mm -hmm. and and from that you sort of segue into well, what about the young men who are going to fight with jihadist causes uh, abroad in these unsanctioned wars, as, as you call it? And, you know, do these volunteers uh, for, in some case, terrorist organizations like Al-Qaeda, if you talk about um, the, uh, the Arab Afghans or the foreign fighters who, who fought in the anti-Soviet jihad in Afghanistan um, in the 80s, or, uh, of course, more recently, as everyone is talking about these days in Syria. So I, I think it can seem pretty baffling for outsiders to say you have a 18 year old or a 22 year old uh, kid from Calgary, you know, how does he end up uh, in Turkey and then getting smuggled into Raqqa to fight on the side of a pretty barbaric regime um, that, you know, he doesn't really owe any allegiance to. How does that process uh, how does that process happen? What are the reasons in that person's mind? So, again, building on the first book, I made it quite clear that we have this misguided notion that people who radicalize the violence are uneducated losers. They're, 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 they live in poverty. Um, they have psychological issues or they have criminal backgrounds. Just as that is untrue in the first book, it's untrue in the second book. When you look at the foreign fighters who left Canada, the UK, United States, France, etc., you see a, a huge potpourri of, of backgrounds. There's no pattern to any of it. You see the ones that are doing well. You see the ones that are not doing so well. So the foreign fighter, uh, those who, Westerners who choose to be foreign fighters are actually a subset of your radicalized population. So some stay here. And plan acts of terrorism uh, in their own countries. Some go abroad to join terrorist groups like Islamic State or Al-Shabaab or Al-Qaeda. And there's a middle part that do nothing. They just stay radicalized. So that's why very much the second book was a follow-on to the first book. So I I, I wanted to focus on a specific conflict. There's a conflict in Syria just for, if nothing else, I didn't want the book to be 3,000 pages. So I looked at uh, Islamic State and I looked at um, first-person testimonies that these people had posted online. And luckily, there was, there's some great websites that summarize those things like, like the Site Institute <laughs> in the United States. Uh, Memory has some good stuff as well. And there's been some other things that have been posted in, in open media. Because I didn't feel as a former intelligence analyst and, a, and an avowed, acknowledged intelligence analyst that engaging these guys myself online was a good idea. Uh, they, they wouldn't trust me, <laughs> simply say. They think I was still working in intelligence and trying to get in, intelligence on them. But I had enough material to go on in terms of Islamic State. And... When you, when you, when I looked at all the data I had, and I looked at several hundred individuals, you, you saw some patterns coming out. So, briefly, um, some of the rationales that were offered by people was that, look, at people are dying in Syria, and no one gives a damn. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing that today, in fact, with the the, the aftermath of the chemical mm-hmm. attacks in Idlib. Um, people are saying, well, 
this is just one more example of the Assad government brutally murdering its mm-hmm. own people in the most heinous way possible, and nobody cares. No one's doing anything about it. And so I, as a Muslim, I have to go and I have to make a difference. I have to go and save people. And I have to go fight against this barbaric regime, the uh, Assad regime, and I have to do my part. One of the other reasons, and this is something which is Islamic State does really, really well in its propaganda, we have to we have to acknowledge that they're the king of propaganda and they're the king of social media, is that they paint the West uh, as a society that Muslims really shouldn't be living in. It's a society full of temptation. It's a society full of uh, un-Islamic practices like alcohol consumption, like pornography, like prostitution, like drug use, like accepted homosexuality and same-sex marriages. And Islamic State says you've got to leave and you've got to come to Islamic State, which, of course, is a utopia as they present it through their propaganda. And the term they use to refer to that is hijra, which is an Arabic term, which means migration. Um, very, very important term in Islamic history because it refers to the Prophet Muhammad's flight from Mecca to Medina when he was being persecuted in the early part of the 7th century. And Islamic State has turned it on its head and said, well, yes, you got to perform migration too, just like the Prophet did, but for reasons that you have to get away from all these Westerners who don't like you anyway and won't acknowledge your faith and come to where you can practice Sharia law and, and live under an Islamic State. Another reason that I found very prominent in uh, the literature, in their testimonies, was this anti-Shiism. So Islamist extremists, like Islamic State, uh, are very virulently anti-Shia. They think that the Shia are apostates, and they think they should be killed. And because the Assad regime is run by uh, Bashar al-Assad, who's an Alawite, and Alawism is a subsect of Shiism, the battle is being portrayed as a battle between an apostate Shia leader and true Muslims being the vast majority of Syrians. So you see an anti-Shia um, uh, rhetoric being used in the propaganda, which we didn't see in Afghanistan, and we didn't see in Somalia, because you don't have the same quite population makeup. And then I think lastly, the, perhaps one of the more fascinating things that gets reflected in the narratives is this notion of apocalyptic uh, scenarios. Mm-hmm. And Islamic State, again, has really played out this notion that they are the force that is going to be fighting the great cosmic battle at the end of time in which the forces of good, i.e. Islamic State, defeat the forces of evil, i.e. the West and all of its allies. And there's all this very rich imagery through, like, Debik magazine, which is its primary online magazine, that refer to these series of events that are going to take place at this end-of-history mm-hmm. moment. And people will talk about it. They'll talk about, I want to go to Syria I want to go fight alongside the Mahdi, the Mahdi being this end-of-time figure in Islamic eschatology, and I want to be there, and I want to die on the battlefield in which good finally defeats evil. Mm -hmm. Again, a narrative we didn't see in any other conflict, and part of it's because one of the main stories, if you will, uh, in Islamic tradition is that the great battle, the great cosmic battle, is going to start in in a town called Dabiq, which is in northern Syria, and that's why... Islamic State called their magazine to be because they're trying to frame this in a millenarian sense. And I, and I think us, we in the West have a hard time with that. But for these guys, this is real. Mm-hmm. They really do think that these are the signs of the times that this battle is, is on, it's on, the, on the horizon. And if I'm going to die, I'm also die at, at, a, at a great battle as opposed to a battle that means nothing. So you made the point that a number of these fighters are sort of flocking to this millenarian cause. Uh, because the Islamic State has has said that the world is going to end around the conflict that that we're engaged in. And it strikes me as a sort of high-risk, high-reward claim to make that if if you're going to say that the end of the world is coming and and it doesn't come, uh, you've you've lost some credit there. And I think it it also uh, relates, perhaps, to their initial claim to be a state that if you're going to claim that you've created a caliphate, um, you're, you're putting that out there. And if the caliphate doesn't hold territory anymore, or it, it, it collapses, it doesn't have that bureaucracy it once had, you've, so you, you've lost some of your credit. And do you think there's, there's an element of that, that, that these, these are things we haven't seen before, perhaps because they are risky kind of claims to make in your propaganda? Or That's a really interesting way of putting it. And I, I agree and I disagree. I agree that for some people, it's like you promised us this wonderful utopian Islamic state. You promised us the caliphate. And it's true, the caliphate does appear in a lot of statements people make. 
I have an obligation because the caliphate has been declared. I have an obligation as a Muslim to get myself to the caliphate because that's where Islam is fully practiced and this is the full sort of manifestation of Islam on earth. So that certainly is a major factor. And I think for some people, uh, the fact that caliphate is not doing very well. And you now we're now looking, we're, what, we're in April 2017. Uh, Mosul is hasn't fallen yet, but half of Mosul has fallen. The other half is is starting to fall. There are reports I've read about Raqqa being mm-hmm. the next one to be taken. So it seems fairly clear to me that we are witnessing probably the the destruction of the caliphate, um, not even three years into its creation. But, you know, on the other hand, you have to bear in mind that some people are willing to see, to see beyond that. And I'll give you a couple of examples. So clearly, I think with the... Um, with, with the thousand-year Reich that the Nazis established in 1933, uh, didn't quite last a thousand years, only lasted 12 years, so 988 years shy of what they claim to be, and yet you still have neo-Nazi movements that are out there. So they're not the same, obviously, as the National Socialist Party in Germany in the 1930s, but we have people who still believe in the cause. There's also there's been some fascinating examples with cults, and I can think of one in particular of uh, one in the United States and I believe that the cult leader is a man called Miller, and he's been predicting the end of the world now for quite some time. And people who follow this this man have given up everything. They've sold their houses, they've sold, they've quit their jobs, they've quit school, and they follow this guy. And they end up on a mountaintop somewhere in a state, and then the rapture is going to come, and then lo and behold, it doesn't come. And then Mr. Miller has to somehow explain why it hasn't happened. And he does. Well, I miscalculated my biblical prophesized. I, I got my numbers wrong. It's going to happen next month, at, and next month the same people show up. So it, there might be something in human nature that you're so uh, invested in a certain cause or in a certain belief system that, despite any rational person will say clearly, this is not going to happen. Maybe you're too far gone to do that. And I wouldn't be surprised if some of those who, who subscribe to the caliphate or the self-described caliphate under al-Baghdadi, that they'll somehow find excuses. And in fact, Islamic State had to do that very recently when um, the town of Dabiq was overrun virtually unopposed by Kurdish forces. So what does your propaganda machine have to do to say, we're going to defend Dabiq because it's the place where good defeats evil. And all of a sudden, we've got to explain why we, we ran away like cowards when, when, the, when, the, when the forces of evil showed up on the horizon. So some will get disillusioned. There's no question about that. But if, if, you've, if you've basically spent so much of your life and you've devoted yourself to the cause and you've put everything into that, it's pretty hard for even you to admit, hey, mm-hmm. um, I may have made a mistake. I may have wasted the last 10 years of my life doing this thing. And some will simply believe any kind of excuse with leadership offers. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't count it out quite yet. Mm-hmm. One of the more catchy or interesting ways to describe the motivation behind radicalization that, that I've heard was actually from the neuroscientist and philosopher Sam Harris. And he talks about the idea that these guys feel like they're a spiritual 007, that they're engaged in this clandestine or, or open, in the case of if they go to Syria, war against infidel forces for the fate of all of humanity that they truly believe in some cases that yeah we may have to kill a few innocents here and there but we are fighting for all of your souls because this is the ultimate fate of every human soul and and the world you either submit to islam Mm -hmm. and get paradise or those who don't are gonna burn forever so there this idea of being a, a spiritual sort of warrior infiltrator, that's a very powerful idea for a 19-year-old kid who's in his basement and doesn't have necessarily a lot going on, I think. Absolutely. And you don't even have to be a loser in life to glom onto this. You no. can actually think that this is something which, and it, it, like I said, if you could, and, and, and again, the propaganda, it lionizes these people. And one thing I remember reading years ago was a whole collection. It's almost like, almost like a hagiography hey of Mujahideen. And the way they describe it is like they're saints. Mm-hmm. And there actually are some fascinating parallels between the ways that martyred Mujahideen are presented versus Christian saints. And there are mm-hmm. a few things in parallel. First of all, the word martyr is a Greek word, which mm-hmm. means witness. And the word shahid, which is Arabic or martyr, means witness. So the two terms mean to say you die witnessing your faith. You die defending your faith. Secondly, uh, if you look at all at, at the history of how saints are, are seen in the Christian church, uh, saints' bodies don't decay. 
they basically remain pristine forever. Neither do martyrs' bodies. They remain pristine. Even if, they, even if they've been blown up, they miraculously somehow get pieced back together. And, of course, then, then, then martyrs are, are revered. They are worshipped. And, and I think that's a very powerful tool where, you, you know, you go where a guy like um, Andre Poulin from Timmins, Ontario, folks. Timmins is a very small town in northern Ontario in Canada. And this guy died fighting for Islamic State, and they did a video of him, and they basically showed him dying, and they showed his dead body. And what was fascinating to me was not so much the dead body, but the scene after he's dead. Um, he's been interviewed throughout the entire video, and so you see his face, and then you see him dying, and then you see his face again, except the second time you see his face, it's backlit, as if he's in heaven, if he's, if he's in paradise. And now he's speaking to you from beyond the grave, and he's saying, follow in my footsteps. Uh, take up the torch and, 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 you know, and follow and, and do what I did. And I think that's a very powerful symbol, which, again, I think many in the West fail to appreciate. Um, I've often described us in the West as a post-religious society in many ways, in that we don't, we don't hold as, as strongly the same tenets we did perhaps a century ago. Um, but the, for these guys, this is real, and this is very important to them. Mm-hmm. The most recent response uh, to the London attack from Dubik, I, I believe they had they have a very stark black and white background of the response uh, to the attack happening in the background, and it said something along the lines of uh, "Jihad is your duty," you know, even if you're in Europe. They're basically saying that this is obligatory on all Muslims, yes, regardless of where you're located, regardless of your circumstances. Do you see what this guy did? That's what you have to do. And I discussed that in the first book, The Threat from Within, is this notion of fard'ain, this notion of an individual obligation on Muslims. And it's interesting the way that Islamic State has picked up on some sort of modern memes and they've taken the, the YOLO, you only live once, and they, they may call it YODO, you only die once. And so you have an obligation to die in the best way possible. And of course, the best way to die is to die as a martyr for the cause. Mm-hmm. That's the way they portray it. Yeah, I- if I'm not mistaken, when uh, the fellow who infiltrated the Toronto 18, Mubin Sheikh, Mubin Sheikh, he was talking about when he was making his way into that group of of young guys, and one of the discussions that came up was: Is jihad an individual obligation or is it a community obligation? Yeah. And he knew that because he was familiar enough that this is my moment of testing and I need to get the right answer because if I don't get the right answer, they, they'll think me not the right type exactly. of Muslim to, to join uh, their circles. So exactly. It, exactly. Even for uh, a very different group, that yeah. seems uh, a relevant uh, dichotomy. So we've been talking mostly about men and, and young men, uh, but you also address uh, the role of women and their unique role in volunteering for these foreign jihadist causes. Um, one of my kind of pet peeves with the discussion around this topic is uh, a term that sometimes get used, uh, female foreign fighters. Mm. And I think that that term is almost always wrong because uh, much of the time these women, whether they stay or whether they, they do hijra, are in, in more of a support role, are they not, as opposed to on the front lines in the Islamic State? Yes, you're right in that sense. I, they would see themselves as foreign fighters, though. They would see themselves as contributing to the cause, contributing to the jihad. Uh, in, in other words, almost like being mujahida, as opposed to mujahid, so the female form of, mujah, of mujahid. But you're absolutely right. We're, uh, we, we have seen a, a startling uptick in female participation in the war in Syria that we had never seen in any other war previously. It's not to say that we didn't have females. We did. But you look at the, the anti-Soviet uh, jihad in Afghanistan. You look at Somalia with al-Shabaab. You look at Bosnia. Yes, you did see some participation amongst in, in the Chechen wars, the so-called Chechen black widows, for example. But in terms of sheer numbers um, in the West, we have never seen the, this rate of participation to the point where, this is going back maybe a year ago, um, British security services reporting that at a certain point in time, fully one in four Brits leaving the joint Islamic State were female. Now, 
Um, they do so for similar reasons. They're angry at what's happening. They do see the caliphate as a utopian Islamic society. They want to go there. They want to marry heroes of Islam, lines of Islam, which the Mujahideen self-style has. Um, they want to have babies to create more Mujahideen down the road. Some of them actually want to fight, and they do something called the Al-Hansa Brigade, which is kind of a quasi-paramilitary outfit. And frankly, some of them are kind of want to go because they think these guys are hunky. Mm -hmm. And the Islamic State does an amazing job of putting these pictures online of these really buff, very attractive, very handsome young men with their shirts off sometimes, holding AK-47s. It's like eye candy. Mm -hmm. And so these girls say, well, hey, wow, uh, you know, I don't like living here in the West. I don't like the prostitution and the drugs and the alcohol and the gender mixing and all the homosexuality. I want to leave anyway. Boy, that guy looks nice. I'll go be his husband kind of thing. Reality, of course, being slightly different when you get there, A, the picture they showed you on, on Facebook isn't the guy you're marrying. He's actually twice as old and he's fat and he's ugly. He doesn't have any teeth. And the second thing being is that you may have your dream husband. Well, if your dream husband dies in battle, you're married off to the next guy waiting because there's so many males waiting for wives and given the, the very strict uh, Islamic uh, societies that they've created you, there's no dating there's no going out there's you marry the guy right away kind of thing so the reality certainly i think is not nearly uh as beautiful as the fantasy mm -hmm. that they think however there have been a lot of females who have been part of the propaganda machine mm -hmm. and there's uh, i'll recommend um two people for for your listeners one is uh dr laura huey at the university of western ontario she's been talking to these women in in, in syria getting to know what their motivations are. Another is a friend of mine, Jessica Davis, who's just written a book on women in jihad. Hmm. It just came out. In fact, I was at her book launch last uh, last month. So she's looking at much more detail about women in terrorist movements uh, writ large. But it is a phenomenon that we haven't seen to the same extent. And the question going forward is, do we have to treat these women differently? Uh, do they somehow pose a different problem than men do? And, and I don't think we have an answer to that just yet. Mm -hmm. So after this discussion of women in the book, you then move on to the very heavily discussed, I think, issue of returnees. And you're debating, you know, are, are they going to pose a threat or are they not going to pose a threat uh, to their home states once they return? Are some of them going to pose a threat? Are all of them going to pose a threat? Uh, you cite a really interesting statistic from, um, I think his name is Thomas. Uh, Haykammer. Haykammer, yeah. 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 That about one in nine returnees, uh, statistically, I guess he's he's looked historically, um, will s come back home and seek to conduct an attack. So, from a Canadian perspective, if you say just for math's sake that a hundred people have gone, that you know maybe that only means that you know we'll have uh, eleven or twelve people b back in Canada if they all returned hypothetically that would seek to conduct an attack, which sounds. Uh, scary, but but perhaps manageable. But when you think of a country like France or Saudi Arabia or Russia or some of these other countries where thousands of people yeah. have gone to come back, and then you might have hundreds of people coming back to do what they call external operations, uh, that, you know, that's a pretty daunting threat. So can you just talk through some sure. of these issues around returnees and, and the threat they pose? Sure. So... Uh, the, the scholar you allude to is Thomas Heghammer. He's a brilliant Norwegian scholar, and he looked at previous jihads, Afghanistan, Somalia, Bosnia. And when he crunched the numbers, this is famous one in nine uh, number. So let's say 10% for argument's sake. I think very highly of Thomas. I think he's a brilliant scholar. And my only question would be is, is the nature of this particular jihad somewhat different than previous jihads? And the reason I ask that question is that we certainly have seen a level of barbarity that we did not see in the previous jihad. We did not see people thrown off buildings. We did not see people uh, beheaded. We did not see people burned alive in the case of the Jordanian pilot that was shot down. We've got some people drowned in cages. So there's a certain... There's chemical a, weapons. Yeah, chemical... We, there certainly is, a. I would say, almost like a... This is going to sound um, maybe, I don't know, not very descriptive, but almost like a degeneration of evil. Uh, and of violence with Islamic State. So the question then becomes, those who fought for Islamic State, as opposed to those who fought for al-Shabaab or al-Qaeda in the past, are they somehow more of a danger because they're truly um, barbaric, they're barbarians uh, in every sense of the word. So it could be higher than 
Um, but even if we stick with 10%, as you said, that number is both comforting and discomforting, depending on the level, as you said. So here in Canada, we estimate 180 or so have gone to fight with Islamic State and other groups. And so if, if, if they all come back, then we're looking at 18 to 20 who might do something, which is maybe a manageable figure. If you're talking France, they've got 1,500, that's 150. Russia has 7,000, that's 700. Tunisia has 6,000, that's 600. So depending on the country, you could be looking at a very, very high level of activity. And you don't know which well, and are that's, going to be those. Well, and, that's, and that's the biggest challenge for your security intelligence law enforcement agencies is that they don't come back with tattoos on their forehead saying, I'm the one, I'm the one in 10, which forces you to monitor and investigate all 100 or all 180 or all 7,000 or whatever it is that make it home. Luckily, most, uh, not luckily, uh, not all come home. Some die. Um, some remain in theater. Some will move on to another conflict, which maybe at the end we'll talk about my third book coming out in September. Some will come back um, disgruntled, dis- uh, uh, disillusioned, very angry at what they saw. Uh, so what I was sold was not what I was given in terms of the utopian caliphate. Some will come back severely messed up psychologically. Do we have the healthcare services in this country or any country to deal with these people? Uh, some will come back with physical wounds, shrapnel wounds, IED wounds, chemical weapons wounds. Uh, what do we deal with those? And the overarching question we're all we're struggling with: Do we arrest these people? The answer, in theory, is yes, because it is a, it is an offense in, under the Canadian Criminal Code to join a group like Islamic State. The challenge, of course, is: Do you have the evidence? And how do you gather evidence in a war zone like Syria? How do you run agents? How do you gather enough information to, to actually get that critical mass where the where the Crown will say, yes, you can lay a charge? And then, you know, can we work with partners in Syria? Well, the answer in Canada is no. We've had a number of inquiries in this country about sharing information with the Syrians. And it, it's quite clear to me that we're not sharing anything with the Syrians anymore because of these, these commissions. And so you've got a real challenge in trying to, to figure out is my case strong enough on person X? I know they were in Syria. I can tell they're in Syria. Do I have anything that suggests what they did? Are there Facebook postings evidence? Mm-hmm. Now, luckily for, for intelligence agencies and law enforcement, these guys aren't shy in sharing who they are and what they do. You know, it's almost like they're bragging about what they're doing. And so they're, they're avid social media users and fans. Is that admissible in court? I mean, I mean, from a purely evidence perspective, can you say this is a picture of John or is this a Photoshop picture of John? And so John's holding a severed head or John's holding a machete against someone's neck in a, in a purported decapitation video. Is that really John? Mm-hmm. Is that really the guy on the ground? So these will be interesting questions going forward in terms of, of, of how you try these guys. But the bottom line is, is that it is inevitable that some of those who who survive and return to their home countries will commit terror. In fact, it's already happened. We saw it in Paris. We saw it in Brussels. We've seen other attacks in other countries by people who fought in foreign jihads. So it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when in Canada. Just yesterday, uh, the RCMP arre- uh, arrested and charged a guy who uh, had left Canada in 2014, allegedly to join Islamic State. Um, got picked up by the by Turkish authorities and got it got extradited back to Canada. He disappeared in court today. So we'll see how that trial goes in terms of what do they know about him? What can they charge him with? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems an extraordinarily difficult topic on so many different fronts. Whether you're talking about from a law enforcement perspective, you know, from an evidentiary basis, what do you have to file uh, charges? From an intelligence point of view, of uh, the intelligence services may actually have volumes of information on. Uh, on a, a given target from sensitive sources, from partners, uh, and can any of that be passed into the realm of law enforcement from a, a consular point of view if uh, foreign affairs uh, or embassies worldwide have someone come in who is a Canadian citizen, are they required to provide consular assistance to that person and have them uh, help uh, assist them to come home? Uh, this is an enormously complex problem, I think, that uh, from, from your book, and I think just from my own reading, uh, we're going to be facing the fallout of this for, for decades to come, I would imagine. I think so. You know, the, you look at the Syrian conflict, and, and even if Islamic State is on the wane, and everyone seems to accept that, that it definitely is, is, is not doing very well, this war has been going on for six years. It has uh, killed hundreds of thousands of people. It has rendered millions stateless, millions homeless as refugees. And 
there is no end in sight. Uh, the Assad regime doesn't appear to be able to end the war, even with Russian and Iranian assistance. The jihadis aren't able to end the war with what they are. Uh, the nationalist forces are not able to end the war. Uh, the Kurds aren't able to end the war. So how long does it, we may in fact see sort of a uh, Syrian jihad part two in two years' time if the war is still going on. So Islamic State's been decimated. Maybe another group's going to rise up. I saw a statistic once which really quite, I find quite both fascinating and, and frightening that there were some, that some have estimated there are a thousand groups fighting in Syria. A thousand groups. Now, they're not all, some might be eight guys in a pickup truck. I don't know. But the point is you've got different, some are nationalist, some are religious, some are Salafist, some are jihadist, some are, you, 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 they're all part of the mix. And, and no one can predict as of April 2017, which group's going to come on top, if any. So we may be, in fact, having this conversation two years from now, and we'll have a completely different organization that has, bears no resemblance to Islamic State, but has taken the war into, into, into a new direction. And I think you can look historically at, at previous conflicts as well, the anti-Soviet jihad in Afghanistan, and states all over the world, including our own and European states, were dealing with returned fighters from that conflict, which, which, as you say, was far less an idea of a global anti-Western jihad. It was much more regionally focused in, in many ways. But nonetheless, the whole world had to deal with the ramifications of really hundreds, at most, low thousands, if you count everyone, coming back from that from that theater of conflict compared to Syria. That's well, and we're talking at least 30,000 foreign mm-hmm. fighters. And you raised Afghanistan, which I think is a really good analogy. You know, we supported the Mujahideen against the Soviets. This was the end of the Cold War in the 1980s. And, of course, the, the, the war ended, the Soviets withdrew, and then Afghanistan descended into complete chaos and warlordism. And then came the Taliban. So we actually, we, we've seen different stages of the Afghan war, even if you want to date it from just 79, as opposed to the great game of the 1860s and 1870s, whereby you had the Al-Qaeda phase, then you had the chaos phase, then you had the Taliban phase. Now you're entering an interesting Islamic state phase in eastern parts of Afghanistan, like Nagarhar province, where the Islamic state is as powerful, if not more powerful, in parts of the country than the Taliban are. So what, what will Afghanistan be in two or three years' time? It's a question we can't answer right now. So as a former intelligence analyst, from a practitioner's point of view, if you have 100 or 200 people returning to your country, how do you evaluate those people? How do you create a ranked list for your security service to say, these are the 10 people we're going to look at very intrusively. These are the 50 we're going to monitor and we don't have the resources for the remainder. Uh, what, what goes into that calculus from a professional point of view? I realize it's a huge question, but just, yeah, and it's, a, and it's a tough question. Like you said, you know, you, you almost have an obligation as a security service or as law enforcement to look at everyone because they have fought abroad. So first of all, it's an offense under the criminal code. Secondly, you may have very, very dangerous people. You, you cannot say, well, you know, this guy isn't very serious. We can ignore him. And that's kind of what happened. And I'm not, I'm not saying this to be dismissive of the RCMP, but that's kind of what happened with Aaron Driver last August. He's a young man who was out on Peace Bond. He was known to the RCMP. He was known to the security service. And yet was deemed to be a lesser priority. And the next thing you know, he's getting in the back of a cab with explosives. And, and he was killed by a SWAT team. So this is the challenge that you're faced with. And what what you do as an intelligence service is you basically, you man up and you, you do a full court press until such time as you can determine, yes, this person does pose a legitimate threat to national security, or based on what we've seen, um, he doesn't. And that's a, that's a decision you make uh, very carefully. You make it very gingerly because you don't want to be wrong. Uh, in a perfect world, you would follow them all. But as you said, you've got finite resources, and people often uh, misjudge what it takes to follow somebody. And I've asked people this question in lectures, and how many people does it take to follow somebody? You know, five, ten? No, it takes 40 people to follow somebody indefinitely because you've got different shifts. You have different ways of doing it. And so if you do the math and you've got 100 returnees, well, you've got 4,000 people that 
so that you need 4,000 watchers to watch 100 people. And that's, of course, is, a, is, a, is an astronomical figure in terms of resources, and you can't do that. So what you do is you collect intelligence, uh, you'll do your physical surveillance, you'll work with partners on what they have found out, foreign and domestic, um, you'll try to run sources. Right, to see who these people are. You'll try to get court-appointed uh, warrants against their telecommunications, and you'll try to draw a picture. Okay, out of the 10 guys that came back, what do we see so far? Uh, which guy is ramping up? Which guy seems to be scaling back or dialing it back a little bit? Again, with this cautionary note that just because someone appears not to be really bent on doing something doesn't mean they're not. I mean, it could be very security conscious. It's pretty rare, actually. Most guys are pretty obvious in what they do. Something that that Reed Malloy, who's an American psychologist, calls leakage, which is what terrorists tend to do. They, they, they tend to betray their, their, their motives. So you're stuck with trying to figure out um, who do we prioritize. And in Canada, it, we're not doing too, too badly because we only ever have a couple hundred at most at any given time. If you work for MI5, the British Security Service, um, they've got 10,000 people they've identified as being radicalized. The French Security Service has 15,000 people identified being radicalized. You, you can't follow 15,000 people. You're doing a constant triage. And as we saw last week in the attack in London, uh, that man, Khalid Massoud, was on MI5's list. He was known to them. But, hey, I've got 10,000 people to look at. He's not a priority because based on what we know of, of him, he's not a priority. Same thing happened in the 7-7 bombings in 2005. Known to the Security Service, Based on what they knew, they weren't priorities. That's what happened to Aaron Driver in August 2016 here in Canada as well. So it is a very uncomfortable feeling to have when you work for a security service and you're being asked, okay, give me your top 10. Based on what I know, here's what I give you. But I got to tell you, I got gaps. There's lots of things I don't know about these people. I don't have a warrant on them yet, or I haven't been able to recruit a source against them yet. And you're doing the best you can based on the limited information that you do. And I, I can t say this from experience, having worked there, you go home at night hoping that you've done what you could. You go home at night hoping that you've, you've turned over every rock, you've crossed every T, dotted every I, and done the best thing possible to ensure that your country is as safe as it can be. And that's a hard thing to go home with. Hmm. And especially uh, in Canada, it seems that the experience is a different one from those countries that have experienced major domestic attacks um, in the sense that Canada hasn't since perhaps Air India. Um, the, it seems that the, the courts and media's view towards security intelligence, signals intelligence, the whole, that whole world of, uh, of anti-terrorism, um, that is one of the tools to, to confront a threat like Islamic State. It seems that the view uh, from many parts of society and civil society in Canada is, is drastically different than it is in, say, the United Kingdom, which dealt with the Troubles and, and has had bombs blowing up in their streets. What, what do you think about the kind of views from other parts of society looking in at the, the anti-terror apparatus? I, I find there are two... Um generalized responses, neither of which is healthy. Uh, first of all, we have the, oh my God, terrorism is rampant, it's existential, it's it's in my neighborhood, the, my, my, the guy across the street's a terrorist. And you're seeing this in some of the rhetoric now in Canada, the sort of the anti-immigrant rhetoric, uh, the Islamophobic rhetoric, uh, dare I say, the some of the rhetoric used by those who want to become leaders of the, Tory, the Conservative Party in Canada. Uh, we're seeing the rise of the Sons of Odin, which is this bizarre Scandinavian hate group, which purports to, basically it's a white supremacist. Um, I, so it's, I mean, I don't want to paint Canada as being this den of, of hate and intolerance, but it's, it's larger than it used to be. And that's an unhelpful. So this is where all Muslims are terrorists. I've stopped immigration. Let's deport these people, that kind of thing. That's not helpful. The other hand is that, well, yeah, there is no terrorism. And it's kind of like an invention of the security service. Because, look, we have the Toronto 18, which was our biggest investigation back in the mid-2000s. Well, these are just young kids. Oh, and a CSIS source egged them on to do it. And nothing really happened. Uh, nobody died. Uh, no attack took place. And when push came to shove, uh, the, the charges were dropped in seven of the 18 cases. So how serious can this be? And I think there is something to what you say in that we haven't had the big one. I, I, I pray we never do. And I... And I pray that, uh, that, our, that our security services and our law enforcement agencies and our signals intelligence people 
uh, have the resources to investigate and stop those ones before they happen. You know, we've only had two deaths from terrorism in 15 years, right? And those two deaths actually took place two, two days apart in October of 2014. I don't know. I, I like to think Canadians would react in, a, in an okay fashion were it to happen. If we were to have a 7-7 or a Paris or a Nice or a Brussels airport attack or an Orlando or a San Bernardino. I'd like to think I know my country enough that it wouldn't be catastrophic, but you simply don't know until it happens. And if it were to happen, would would Canadians ramp up this anti-immigrant Islamophobic rhetoric? Would they say, give CSIS more resources and the RCP more resources? I don't know. If, we're going to have to wait until, I mean, like I said, I hope it never happens. It'll be interesting to see in the aftermath of an attack how people react, what they start asking for and demanding. But yeah, we have dodged that bullet so far. Um, I, I can't guarantee we'll dodge it forever. We have very good security services in this country, but they're not perfect, and nor can they be. Just to round up our interview, what's what's next? You have more books on the horizon. Uh, I think you, you've alluded to to a new one coming. Yeah. So the uh, the same publishers, so Roman and Littlefield, have already they're fast tracking my third book, which uh, I only completed as of late last year. It's coming out in September. And it's the title is The Lesser Jihads, uh, Bringing Islamist Extremism to the World. And it's very much just like this book was a follow-on to the first book. The third book is a follow-on to the second book. And it asks the question, wh- where will the foreign fighters go next? If they don't go home, or if they don't stay in Iraq and Syria, or if they don't get killed, or if they don't abandon the cause, and if they're seeking another jihad to fight in, uh, where might that be? And I look at conflicts ranging from Nigeria to the Philippines. Look at about 20 different conflicts around the world with a focus of what is the conflict? Very, very in a cursory fashion because entire volumes have been written about these conflicts like Kashmir and, 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 uh, Dagestan. Dagestan and, and, you know, Xinjiang and Southern Philippines and things like that. But I asked the question, what are the jihadis saying about it? And how are they framing it in a way that says, look, boys, Muslims are dying. We need your help. The infidel is on the horizon. We can't do it by ourselves. Come and join us. In the same way that Islamic State used propaganda to encourage foreign fighters to come fight in Iraq and Syria since 2013, what are, what are the other jihadi groups saying about these other wars? And, and I show, I hope and quite convincingly, that there's far too many opportunities for your aspiring or veteran mujahid to find a fight next. And these wars, like I say, they range from Africa all through the Middle East and Asia. Uh, there are quite a few of them, and they're all different in, in nature. Some are where Muslims truly are being persecuted, like what's happening in northern Myanmar now with the Rohingya by the Buddhists. Some are cases like Nigeria, where you have the attempt to form a caliphate in northern Nigeria, which is heavily Muslim versus southern Nigeria, which is Christian. So every conflict has its own ways of doing things. But it's, it's fascinating to see what their rhetoric says. So how, how are the jihadis selling this and urging people to fight? So that's coming out in September. Great. Well, we'll look forward to uh, having you on again uh, in September. I sincerely hope so. Thanks, Paul. Thanks so much, Phil. 